Today, we are looking at a lengthy text. And so, um, we'll stand a moment in honor of God's Word. If it's too long for you today, that's fine. You can remain seated. But want to look at this text in, its, uh, in, the, in the whole thought, in its context. This is really the first and largest of Paul's sermons presented to us in the book of Acts. Uh, hardly his first time to preach, but the, the most a rehearsed one here in our text. So, if you don't mind, let's go ahead and stand. We'll get right to it today. We'll begin our reading in verse number 14. Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark have embarked on their very first missionary journey. This is the second part of that. And they're now up in the mountains of the region called Galatia. And uh, we'll begin our reading in verse 14. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch of Poseida, or Pisidia, and went into the synagogues on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. So, what an incredible opportunity to preach. They were invited to. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, Men of Israel, ye that fear God, give audience. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with a an high arm brought he them out of it. And about the time of forty years suffered he their manner in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land unto them by lot. And after that he gave unto them judges about the space of four hundred and fifty years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward they desired a king. And God gave unto them Saul, the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of forty years. And when he removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. Now, this was a history lesson until here, and all of a sudden, bombshell. History culminated in Christ. And when John had first preached the Baptist before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he, speaking of the Messiah. But behold, there cometh one after me, Jesus implied, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you that feareth God, this is a Jewish con or a Gentile converts, to you is the word of the salvation sent. For they that dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voice of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled, uh, all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, the cross, and laid him on the sepulchre. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came within, uh, with, with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are witnesses unto this day. And we, Paul and Barnabas, declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers God hath fulfilled." <clears throat> the same unto us their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again, as is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that the raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. 
And so what's happening here, he's quoting all the Psalms. Most of these references are just messianic Psalms that Paul is now quoting. Wherefore he saith on another Psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. So he's making a case. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid into his fathers and saw corruption. But he, whom God raised again, saw no corruption, Christ. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things for which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. And now verse 40. So I've made my case. Beware. Beware, therefore, lest thou come, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. And this is the quotation. Behold, you despisers and wonder and perish, for a work to work in your days, a work which you shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the congregation was broken up, the sermon's over, many of the, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Okay, so they're asking them to continue, but also, would you come back next week and preach again? And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the Word of God. So everything was okay until then. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. And then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing, speaking of Jews, but seeing you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded, uh, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldst be for, uh, be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. And glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women, and the chief men of the city, and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them out of their coast. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them, and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy, and with the Holy Ghost. Father, we thank you so much for preserving your word for us. Lord, we know that there's not just information here, but application for us to make to our lives. And so, Lord, I, I pray in the next few moments as we, Lord, look into this text, Lord, consider it. Lord, we'd also find its truths that can be applied to our life, and we would do that. We ask for your help with this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, God bless you. Thank you. Truly appreciate you standing. I know it was a, a very long time. In our text this morning, Paul and Barnabas are on the second leg of their very first missionary journey that was begun in Antioch. Uh, this would have been southern Turkey, just north of Syria. And they were called by the Lord and then recognized by the church for this endeavor and, and then blessed and sent by them. Paul, Barnabas, and their companion in this first journey was John Mark. Um, they set sail from uh, a port very near Antioch 
to the island of Cyprus, about 60 miles away. Cyprus is an island about 90 miles long and 10 miles wide. There was both a Jewish and a Gentile population there. This is where Barnabas was from. And so it was a logical place that the, the gospel would launch into the larger Gentile world. This is a large Mediterranean island, of course, where the gospel would now take root and springboard into Western Europe. Upon arrival there in Cyprus, last week we learned, they began to preach the gospel first to the Jews in the synagogue, which was the manner of Paul. He loved his brothers and wanted them to hear the, the gospel first. And they began there. And uh, some believed, but the majority did not. And they continued then to traverse the island, and they wound up in the capital city, a place called Paphos. And among the Gentiles who heard the gospel there was a notable man, Sergius Paulus, who was the governor of the island, a representative of Rome, who had a desire to hear Paul. He both heard them and then he saw them. We talked about this Wednesday. He saw their power. And he is saved and led to the Lord. And so at that, then that concludes their ministry in Cyprus. And they sail on there uh, to the northern part of Turkey. In the Mediterranean there, Turkey, the Mediterranean would, would look like this. And Antioch would have been here, Cyprus in the middle but uh, Turkey still would have continued, and the Galatia is this region of northern, or maybe we call it northwest Turkey, and, and that's where they began to go. Um, this was some 400 miles now into their missionary journey, away from the original Antioch that they went forth from, and they landed in a city called Perga, probably a port, uh, but no events are discussed there in the Bible. Actually, it doesn't discuss what happened in, in uh, Perga. However, a significant event uh, occurred. It was recorded for us in our text that occurred further up in the mountains. So they landed in Perga, and then they probably had some ministry there, but then they go up into the mountains into another city. Now, don't let this confuse you. Another city called Antioch. And, and this is Antioch of Pisidia. A different city, it's kind of like there are a lot of different cities that are named the same in the United States. This would have been another city by the same name, but 400 miles away from where they launched from. And so they went to the synagogue, which was their habit. And this time they sat down and they, they, they heard the, the, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, which is always the way they opened their services, read. And the men took note there that Paul and Barnabas had, uh, were guests. And they invited them to speak. And you have to remember, you know, no doubt they had heard something about Paul and his conversion. But whatever else was true about Paul, he was the number one and most famous and prominent student of Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was a very famous teacher, rabbi of that day. So to have his most prominent student here, you know, if you have something to say, we want to hear it. And so a divinely ordained opportunity for the Apostle Paul to share the gospel to these people. And that's the way the Lord works. And so Paul begins, he raises his hand, and he says, men and brethren, and you know, I'm, I'm, he begins his sermon, if you will. Now again, this is hardly the first time the Apostle Paul has preached, but it is the first lengthy sermon recorded of his in the book of Acts. And what he does here is interesting and fascinating. And so he begins, much like Stephen did, as we remember in his earlier sermon, he begins with a history lesson. And he's trying to gain some credibility in what he's about to say. And he's bringing up this, this idea is that history and prophecy intersected and culminated in the person, Jesus Christ. 
So he argues that historically, and as I said earlier in Psalms, he argues that prophetically. So he starts at the beginning of Jewish national identity, which was their, you know, uh, coming out of Egypt. And he tells how they're delivered by the mighty hand of God. And then, of course, he mentions the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And next he rehearses their military victories in Canaan, the seven nations conquered, and how God distributed land to the people. And there was 400 years of ensuing guidance through the judges, which culminated in Samuel. And then God gave a king who wasn't the guy they really needed. So he gave another king. He went from Saul to David, who was, in fact, a man after God's own heart. But now in mentioning David, he's bringing history and prophecy together. For every Jew knew that from the loins or from the lineage of David, a Messiah would come. They all knew this. This was part of their, their training. They understood that from the lineage of David, from the tribe of Judah, you know, the Messiah would come. And so these people have to be thinking. He's given a history lesson, but boy, he's talking about David now. So he makes this segue to the, the ability to, to mention Jesus Christ as Savior. And so he talks about David and all the promises related to David, that he would die, he would see corruption, but someone from his lineage would not uh, see corruption in death. And so he's mentioning Christ, and that's what he does. And so Paul's ultimate point, again, is that history and prophecy collide together and find their ultimate fulfillment in this person, the son of David, whom you've heard about, and his name is Jesus Christ. And his argument is that the Messiah has now come. And that he offers justification, in other words, right relation with God, and forgiveness of sins. And that the religious establishment who was around Christ rejected him. And then he quotes some Old Testament verses that say that's what would happen. That though God did a wonder in your day, uh, that you would not notice it. Another verse, that they rejected the cornerstone that God laid. So he's making this case, Christ has come, history proves it, uh, prophecy points to it, and again, history continues because they rejected him. That's what the Bible, or, you know, their idea, the Old Testament scriptures would say, but God did not forsake him. Even though Pontius Pilate and the Roman government and the Jewish leaders conspired to kill him, God did not forsake him. And though he was crucified, he also was resurrected. And by the way, guys, he was seen of his disciples afterwards. And, you know, we know that about 500 people saw Christ after he was resurrected. So he gives this history of the Jews that culminates in Christ, who offers justification and forgiveness. And then Paul pivots. <clears throat> yeah, I may have a voice. I don't know. We'll see. He pivots in verse 38. And let's look there very quickly. He said, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man preached unto you is the forgiveness of sins and 39 and by him all that believe are justified from all things and, and, and this statement um, from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses and here's a rub because they still thought salvation came through the law you see if you really go back in history you're going to see how it leads to Christ. And if you really read your Old Testament, and you're going to see how all these prophecies, just check it out, they're fulfilled in Christ. And yes, he died, but that's also in the text. And if you go read all these Psalms that are referenced here, it not only mentions that he died, but how he died, where he would die, how he would be raised. He says, all that's in there. Like every single bit of it is in there. 
You go read it. And, and he makes this case, and, and this is how man is justified with God, not this religion. This is how man finds forgiveness of sins. You, you, you can't find it. What we're doing here is great. This, this, this meeting of this congregation then, that day, but this, this won't save you. And, and so he publishes, you know, he says, men and brethren, this is history, prophecy culminated, and this is how man is saved. This is the whole point of our entire religion, is how do we get saved to this point, redemption. And in verse 40, so he just stops. You know, he's, he's preached his sermon, and their minds are swimming, and some are like, man, you know, I got to go home and read my Bible. You know, they didn't have the Bible, but you know the Old Testament Scriptures. We got to check this out. And Paul looks at him and says, okay, now beware. Or be aware. Perceive. Understand that what I say, if rejected, comes with eternal consequence. This is not just another sermon. This is just not some ancillary truth, another principle to be applied. You need to beware. You need to perceive that this is the culmination of history and prophecy come together in Christ. And this man and through this man priest is the only way anyone on this planet can be saved. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby they must be saved. This is critical. It's a big deal. That rejection here of truth, of rejecting prophecy in history will bring eternal consequence. Refusing to believe will bring condemnation. He quotes Haggai 1.5. It reaches this time when what rejection would bring back in, in that day. This was a group of Gentile believers who refused to, to honor God and God brought judgment. And, and he quotes this and the principle is, you reject God, you find judgment. And as this story unfolds, this sermon, we find that some Jews believe and a greater number of Gentiles believe. Many wanted to hear more, and that's fair. You know, that's a lot to process. And uh, so, would you come back next week and preach more to us? And you'll preach to more, this all to us again. We, we want to go home and check this out, and, and we want to think about this. Would you come back next week? Which they were glad to do. The following week, after this incredible sermon, Paul and Barnabas came back to preach. And of course, it was a gathering of Jews at that time and, and those who had converted to Judaism. But this news spread to the whole city of Antioch, Pisidia, which is in the mountains of Galatia. And the whole city turns out. Wouldn't that be awesome? You know, the whole city comes out. And uh, just the same thing that happened in Jerusalem. The religious leaders are looking at this and thinking, oh, this isn't good. And it's, it wasn't because what he said was, wasn't true. This is humanity. It's because, well, if these people are saved, our influence is going to be diminished. Unlike John the Baptist who said, you know, he must increase, I must decrease. They didn't want to decrease. It's the same thing we read earlier, you know, uh, about um, Sergius Paulus's advisor who didn't want to be diminished. It's amazing how, how we can reject God for the things that we want. And that's part of the sermon still to come. These religious leaders felt threatened. Their position would be weakened if so many people believed. So they conspired. And the idea of these 
prominent women and men, especially this, they were finding the rich, the wealthy, the politicians, the um, religious leaders, the people who had power in the city, who had push and pull, to kick them out, to expel them. And they had sufficient power, despite the wishes of the people, to do so. And they were kicked out. And, uh, and so, you know, we get this kind of thing that Jesus said. They just kicked the dust of the city off their feet, said, that's what you want. Um, it's going to come with, with, you know, judgment. But we're going to go on to the Gentiles. And, of course, that's what God had called him uh, to do. Now, there's a number of possible um, ways to look at this text, and my mind just swims with all the ways to do this. Um, there's this whole thing here we could talk about today about the prominence of preaching and the place of preaching. And you know, today we have social media, we have videos and movies, we have so many ways to convey ideas. You know, I, I know this, and this is the truth the medium affects the message. You know, there was a day. Terry and I talked about this a long time ago. There's a day when I used to watch the news, and we used to get every news channel gave the same, the same news. There's a guy in a suit standing there kind of boringly reading, but you got the information. But because TV is an entertainment venue, the, the news has morphed, hasn't it? The medium affects the message. And, the, and that's a whole other message I'm not going to preach today. <clears throat> but my point is this, is the medium that God has historically chosen for the gospel to be conveyed is through preaching. And so we ought never despise it, never marginalize it, never substitute it. We can do other things here, but we have to keep preaching central. It's a big deal. But that's not the way we're going to look at it. That was on the side. Another way to look at this is, of course, the content of Paul's sermon, which is amazing history. But here's the thing that would be so cool to consider. How God has sovereignly worked in Jewish and human history despite all mankind's um, sin and error, to still bring about the Savior of the world, to still to accomplish His purpose. History is not just a random flowing of human endeavors. Rather, it is the divinely ordained river that God is directing to its ultimate end, and that was Jesus Christ then. And listen, it'll be Jesus Christ again one day coming in the clouds of the air to take us home for a millennial reign and then into eternity. That's going to happen no matter what man does. So we ought to have confidence in that. We ought, we ought not fret and worry about the world. We can be concerned about it. We can disagree with a lot. But we ought not be worried and fret so much. God will bring about His plan. However, I think the most pointed and necessary application they've already hinted at is found in verse 40. So look there again with me. Paul preaches this whole sermon. And then he pivots. This is kind of like the, the leg <coughs> that it stands on. You know, like <coughs> today, there's a message preached. And, and I hope there's some value in, in the message and something learned. But, but, but then the pivot of the message comes at the end. We call it invitation. In other words, I, I'm just not giving you Jewish history, Paul was saying. I, I know people, are, their fancy is tickled by prophecy, and there's people who like history. But that's not, what, that's not the point of the message I preach, was just to give you information. The point of the message is to bring you to a point of decision. And that's the difference between sometimes preaching and teaching. Teaching gives information, but preaching calls people to a, to a decision. And it's through that foolishness of preaching, not teaching, that men are saved. They're called to a point of decision. 
And in verse 40, he does that. So he, he gives this truth, and he's implying you need to do something with this truth because this is how you're saved. And then he says, now, beware that you don't dismiss what I've said. Beware that this isn't just more information for you. Just, you need to beware that this isn't rejected and marginalized and, and put to the side. He says, beware. In the Greek, it literally means take heed. Unless you've heard this truth, like so many in history have before. Here comes the, Hag the quote from Haggai 1.5 that's mentioned in verse 41. Like them, that you hear truth and you, you ignore it to your own demise, to your own hurt. And that's what's quoted in that 41st verse from Haggai 1.5. See, this warning echoes historically. That God's grace is available, it's, 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 it's present, but you have to receive it. God has and is calling His people to truth. And He's asking them, <clears throat> don't forsake it. There's a lot of information out there we can just choose to reject, to ignore and marginalize, but there's some truth that you reject at your own peril. Like, I can act like gravity is no big thing. I can ignore it. And, you know, for the most part, I can walk around here and say, I don't care about gravity. I don't care about gravity. Gravity is a myth. Gravity is a lie. Until I walk off here ill-prepared. And then me and gravity meet. And there's going to be a consequence for my failure to acknowledge gravity. And men can live a whole lot of their lives. I don't care about grace. I don't do all the things with Christ. I'll find my own way. I'll do what I want to until they walk off the cliff of death. And it's not gravity that finds them. It's the judgment of God. And he says, so beware. You, you, you beware. All throughout the Bible, you, the word beware is found, probably echoed most loudly from Moses. As, as he said, God wants to bless you. He's going to give you, he's going to, he's going to be your, your, your God and your guide. But you beware lest you forget him. You beware lest you start marginalizing him. You, you beware lest you forget where all this blessing comes from. Because if you forget, you're going to suffer. And every time we marginalize any truth, it diminishes our lives. Isaiah shouted, beware. Jeremiah issued warnings, beware. The minor prophets constantly and repeatedly asked the people to beware. Beware is the call to perceptions, to understanding, to acknowledgement. Look at Hosea. There's this truth about this, this thought of, of neglect. He says, uh, my people... My people are destroyed for a lack of, next word, truth, acknowledging the truth. Why were God's people being destroyed? Why were they perishing? Why were they being diminished? It wasn't because they were, forgive me, dumb. It's not what he's saying. It's because the, the truth that you have received from the prophets and the word of God, you have marginalized. You're going to suffer for it. Solomon cried out, where there is no vision, vision, 
an Old Testament word for revelation. We use this word truth. Where there is no application of truth, where there is no vision, the people do what? Isaiah said, truth has fallen in the streets. Sound like America? See, I don't want to fret and worry about it. But this is an axiomatic truth. It's cause and effect. You marginalize truth. You mess with that bull, you're going to find those horns. You're going to find yourself in a pit because of this. The most immediate application of Paul's beware, of course, concerns the gospel. He's speaking to an entire group of lost people. You got to think about that. These are all Jews, and these are converted Gentiles into Judaism, but his entire audience is lost. Like, this is lost. Some people think this is where Lois and Eunice were saved. Uh, and, and then, of course, Timothy would have come to faith after that from them. This is lost people. And he's saying, beware. He says, guys, men and brethren, I say guys, he says men and brethren, you need to understand that this is the way that a man is justified. This is the way that your sins are forgiven. And you know what Isaiah said, your sins have separated you between you and the God who loves you. All, all, all your righteousness, remember Isaiah said, that all your righteousness is as filthy rags. Filthy rags cannot enter into the throne room of God. Men and brethren, this is the only way you can be saved. And then he presses. He says, your practices can't save you. And this attendance, which is commendable, cannot save you. And he says, even knowing, concerning the Old Testament law, even being involved in this, it cannot save you. All this can do is point you to your need for a Savior. You can't, you don't measure up to any of these commands. You can't keep these things perfectly. That means you're a sinner. Sinners do not merit eternal life. So even your law, practiced, cannot save you. And of course, they would not have liked that. It can only condemn you. What you need today is forgiveness of sins and justification before God. And that is only found by the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross who bore your sins. Who, who, who there was punished by God on your behalf. And through His resurrection and eternal life, He can grant you that on His behalf. It can be imputed to you through His death, burial, and resurrection. He is the only name given among men whereby men must be saved, men and brethren. The application for us here today is obvious. I know my audience, but I would not presume to think that everyone here today is saved. Just because you're here doesn't make you saved. Just because you have a heart for God doesn't make you saved. There, there needs to be a moment in time where you and God, the grace of God, have intersected and you've asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins. That you've recognized that you're undone, that, that all your works of righteousness cannot and have not and will not save you. And that your only hope of meriting eternal life is found in Christ. 
that has, that has had to be a moment in your life. And I would say to you, with love and kindness, beware. You should beware of living one more day without Christ. That's an enormous assumption in today's world. You, you should beware that, that going home today, that you, you might make it there and make that assumption over and over because some people don't and won't. You need to be aware that you, you, you may just marginalize Christ enough that you stop thinking about it. And you may live in your next few decades and never do business with that. And I'm going to tell you, you need to beware. Because that's, that's just the way to death and destruction. That, that's the way to uh, uh, an eternal damnation in hell. And that's not what God wants. Paul preached so that people could be saved. And I'm standing here making that same appeal. If you don't know that you're saved today, that needs to be settled today. To marginalize any truth is to suffer its consequences when it's applied. <coughs> and none of us know that we have tomorrow. Today, if you have ignored, put aside the truth of the gospel, that salvation and reconciliation, justification is found in Jesus Christ only, you should do business with that because fate will find you in time. You're going to walk off a cliff someday. It's important that we do not, that we fail to beware. The Jews repeatedly rejected Jesus for two reasons historically. They failed to meet his political expectations. They wanted national deliverance, not soul deliverance. Jesus offered a coming kingdom. They wanted their present kingdom to be elevated. Secondly, they rejected Jesus because he threatened their dominance. Sometimes we put off Christ because we are threatened by his dominance. What's he going to ask me to do? What is he going to do with my life? I don't want to surrender my sin. I don't want to surrender what I want to do with my life. Friend, that is an incredibly poor trade. And it has kept many, many, many souls out of heaven. What good is it to gain the whole world and to lose your own soul? And if, if the one who saves us is a creator, he's like a good father, he doesn't withhold any good thing for us, you do nothing but gain in Christ. There's, there's no long-term loss. Being a Christian isn't always easy, but it is always a blessing. I would tell you today, unapologetically, he wants your heart and all of it. He wants you to surrender your life. He wants all of your faith, but we must yield it. He wants you to be humble today. Maybe beyond salvation, there, there's still this truth that you need to yield to Christ. He wants you to be humble, but we want to assert our dominance. We want to hold on to our hurts. Jesus wants you to love and forgive, but we want to <clears throat> love ourselves. Failing to heed the truth of God, the text says, creates loss, perish, judgment. As surely as gravity finds the apple plucked from a tree, in time we too will be dashed upon the ground of judgment if we do not choose and accept Christ. Today that is my invitation.
If you've never received Jesus Christ as Savior, then today's your day of salvation. And if there's another area of life that you've not yet surrendered to Christ, you should. You need to. Every time we reject Christ, anything He asks of us, we diminish our hearts and our soul, we diminish our life. Beware. Never, never reject Christ. Let me ask you to stand today, if you would.